Unfortunately, in many countries, you come in there, and you are an observer, and you can see that there seems to be some collusion between the election management body and the state. Hello, this is Leaders' Voices from the Leaders of Africa Project, a broadcast that focuses on leadership and the experiences of thought leaders across African countries. My name is Peter Pinar. I'm a political science researcher at Michigan State University in the United States. I'm also the host of this Leaders of Africa Project broadcast. We present part two of our interview with Professor Kelioboja Mapunye. As you may recall, Professor Mapunye is the inaugural Whipul Bergaliabam Chair in Electoral Democracy in Africa at the University of South Africa. Presently, Professor Mapunye conducts research on elections, governance, and democracy in South Africa and continentally, with particular attention to election management bodies. Although this is his major focus, Professor Mapunye has written articles and contributed to media debates on topics ranging from post-independence, bureaucratic and administrative reform, to gender and human rights concerns. Professor Mapunye joined us via Skype from Pretoria, South Africa. Now let's turn to this question, and you've alluded to it, you've talked about it in terms of best practices, in terms of building an impartial and independent election commission. And I want to start broadly here at the beginning. You know, obviously elections are a very important part to democracy. They're not the whole picture, but they're a very important part of representative democracy. What role do you see election commissions playing in serving and promoting democracy? Or what role should they be playing? What role they are playing, let's start with what they are playing. What role they are playing is to ensure that they safeguard the integrity of an election. In other words, country X is going to have an election. They have to come up with voters register or voters roll, which is sanctified. In other words, it's clean. It doesn't have ghost voters. It doesn't have people who are erroneously included in there. It doesn't have dead people who are put in there just for the numbers and for the show. So they have to safeguard the integrity of the election by making sure that they've got the mechanisms in place, the systems must be in place, the electoral act or the electoral legislation must be in place governing that election. And they must make sure that the pre-election, election day, as well as post-election you know, procedures and processes are you know, well above board. They have to make sure that they work uh, with the election uh, observers and they have all you know, provisions to make sure that they engage observers and they give reports where reports are required. And they must make sure that after an election is held, in terms of the legislation, they must give results timely. You cannot have the situation where an election is held and two or three months after that, we still don't, have, like it happened in Uganda, we still don't know what was the outcome of that election? And you have a hard, like a hung, you know, kind of uh, results. So for me, those are the things that they need to do. And this is what they are doing. But some of the things that they are not doing is this issue around ensuring that they remain impartial, that they remain objective and that they remain independent from the state and from the governing party. Unfortunately, in many countries, you come in there and you are an observer and you can see that there seems to be some collusion between the election management body and the state sitting election body. Mm -hmm. In Uganda last year, some of the observers were quite doubtful about, you know, I must say, because it was in the open, and I can tell you that, quite doubtful about the election commission day because they thought, but how impartial are these guys? Because when we say that they must give information, they seem to be guarded and they seem not to be quite transparent in their views and so on. And the information comes in drips and drabs. And if you deal with an election body that is like that, unfortunately, even when the outcome is released, you tend to be quite you know, suspicious about the outcome. So we want them to be you know, transparent. We want them to, to be you know, accountable to the citizens. And most importantly, like I said, they have to conduct 
wall-to-wall voter and civic education throughout, even when there's no election, so that, uh, you know, they inform citizens about their rights and so on, and to ensure that, you know, citizens can have trust. If election management body does not, uh, you know, enjoy the citizens' trust, you can imagine they can announce, uh, you know, the election outcome, but citizens might can still go out into the street and they riot, or the country can erupt in smoke or in violence. So we're going to talk about that. I want to talk about that in a second. Actually, have you elaborate on one of your points: the issue of impartiality, professionalism, and credibility. Those three terms. When we hear them, we kind of know what they mean. But I'm curious, how do you measure them? How would you measure impartiality when you're thinking about conducting research or monitoring how these election commissions are doing? How do we benchmark that, the issues of impartiality, professionalism, and their credibility? I must tell you, Peter, you and I as researchers will know that uh, you do not operationalize these terms in terms of uh, empirical, you know, way of, uh, you know, going into the field and measuring, coming up with templates you will not be able to exactly, you know, measure them. And that's where the catch is. That's where the difficulty is. Myself as a researcher, if I want to check whether the election management body of country X is quite, uh, you know, impartial, obviously I will look at what the legislation says, which is very, very important because most of these bodies are governed by the legislation. But apart from that, I'm also going to use my own researcher's hunch, whereby I will approach them you know, try to see whether if I engage them and ask for information, let's say, for argument's sake, they uh, passed uh, through two or three elections that you have held. Can I have uh, you know, access to the results? I mean, two or three elections took about 15 years. If they are able to give you that information and the information comes to you timely without any cloak and dagger stuff or without any, you know, hidden things and so on. For me, I would say that we can use, you know, willingness to give information. We can use it as one of the factors that one can use to measure that transparency. In this case, it's not impartiality, but it's transparency. But also impartiality is where they are able to uh, give you information that might potentially not reflect them in in a good light whereby an election didn't go very well. One of them, to give a practical example, is the South African election management body. We have engaged them in the past where, you know, we told them, but listen, this election here in this area didn't go very well, and the research was undertaken, which shows that uh, your officials did not, you know, perform very well. And they were quite quick to acknowledge. So in that case, it shows you that, uh, yes, the uh, integrity of, uh, you know, this body, you know, can be heightened by the fact that, they, or increased by the fact that they are willing to accept their mistakes, they don't hide their weaknesses, and also the impartiality is their relationship in particular to the ruling party or to the governing party or to the government in power. That in itself is not easy to measure, but you can measure that by, uh, you know, just looking at how they relate. Who pays the, you know, uh, who appoints the top officials, the executives and so on, and how do they generally relate and how have they related in the past two, three elections? What did the observer reports say about the relationship between the EMB, the election and management body and the state? Because there have been quite adverse reports, I must tell you, in many parts of the continent, which have indicated some kind of an unhealthy relationship between the EMB, the election management body and the state. So to that extent, one can use that. But Currently in Africa, if you ask me, the jury is still out there for us as researchers to develop those indicators mm-hmm. on impartiality, on integrity, on uh, transparency to ensure that we can apply it on all the EMBs across That's the continent. Right. Unfortunately, because of the different uh, regions, very difficult to, to have one template for all of them because some of them, they don't accept or they are not very friendly when it comes to 
approached by researchers. Some don't want even to deal with researchers. Some will allow you, but uh, actually hide information to you. So you travel from here to the Gambia or to Eritrea, where elections are banned, then they will just politely dismiss you or they'll send you on a wild goose chase. And then it's a wasted uh, you know, expenditure. In fact, in my research, I found that some of the EMBs have been quite open, but obviously it varies across countries for sure. And, and it yeah. makes it a challenge for measuring, as you said, operationalizing a lot of the concepts that we're interested in. Now, you've also talked about this issue earlier, the issue of trust in election commissions. And when we look at trust, you know, evidence from reputable surveys such as the Afrobarometer survey, which is conducted in 36 African countries, indicates that trust in election commissions is declining or, or is fairly low. Looking at countries such as Ghana, which we would expect perhaps that trust would be on the higher level, it's on the decline. These efforts have been observed, even though some countries have put an emphasis on improving election quality. So I'm curious, what do you think is the issue here? Why are citizens not trusting their election commissions? And what can be done from the electoral commission standpoint to build those trust links and to increase trust amongst citizens? Number one, I think the trust, as indicated by the Afrobarometer you know, research, is declining partly because of what I said earlier whereby people go into these you know, election management bodies, but their um, impartiality, their um, integrity is quite questionable. Some of them, you might find that uh, actually they've had previous uh, you know, relationship uh, with the governing or ruling parties, you know? And so if you have people like those, that tends to compromise you know, the integrity of and the trust of citizens on this election body. In the case of South Africa, if I can just uh, you know, borrow from my experience, I know previous research by the HSRC, the Human Sciences Research Council, I think it's a 2011 public participation survey. Mm -hmm. They also had another survey earlier in 2010. Surprisingly, Peter, it was indicating that the trust in the local election management body was the highest or put the election management body high among a, a whole host of uh, you know, bodies, including national parliament, including the uh, police, including the parties themselves, they were much lower, including the South African Broadcasting Commission, uh, you know, corporation, which is the broadcaster here in South Africa. Yeah. Uh, all those, you know, including local councillors, all of these that I'm mentioning were much lower. I think it was around 79% of the, uh, the IEC. So to that extent, it showed that citizens in South Africa, unlike maybe elsewhere in the continent, still put, uh, you know, high regards and trust on the body. However, that was 2011, Peter. In 2013, we had the head of the, uh, the commission here in South Africa being fired because political parties, uh, two political parties, I think it was the UDM, United Democratic Movement, as well as the EFF, Election Economic Freedom Fighters, uh, challenging, you know, her integrity because they said that, uh, you know, she has been involved in some, you know, untoward issues and therefore they are challenging, you know, her position to run the 2014 elections. Guess what? She was suspended and shortly thereafter, when the court case came, she lost the court case and she was fired from the body. Now, I'm not so sure whether, you know, what the results of the research is going to show now about the trust of citizens. But the way they have run the election last year is still fairly above board. And citizens were really, really happy, you know, given by media reports that, uh, you know, I don't think their trust were, you know, declined. But in the rest of the continent, it's this issue of officials being tainted with the governing party. The other one is uh, where you have the uh, election management body itself not being quite transparent, not giving citizens sufficient information before an election, not telling them about the electoral system that they're going to use. In Uganda, for instance, 
about a week before the, we had the election last year in 2015, citizens were told, oh, now we are going to be using biometric uh, you know, system. Parties didn't even know about this. For me, Peter, things like this are the things which compromise the trust of citizens on these bodies, using quite rushed methods just on the eve of an election. The other one is also the issue of money, where they don't spend much money on all the regions. Many African countries are agrarian societies, meaning that you have more village-based, rural-based societies than urban. But they tend to focus more on the urban areas. When they go into the hinterland, they could hardly operate the way they do in the metropoles. And for me, this also compromises citizens' trust on these bodies because they see them for where they are. People who come in like parties every five years, they do this rush, rush intervention and to run an election, and then soon thereafter they withdraw. And they are going to see them after five years again when they are coming to tell them that, we, OK, we are running an election. And they don't really know the citizens very well. So for me, basically, I think this is the key issue which compromises these elections. Finally, obviously, how can you run an election as an EMB or election management body and then shortly thereafter there's violence? In other words, it means to some extent citizens will point fingers at you to say you said you have everything in place, but look your handiwork is resulting in violence. So to that extent, if an election results in violence or people are, you know, women are complaining, minorities are complaining, youth are complaining, it means you have to do something as an election body to clean up your act. Yeah, and it sounds like there's some relationship in terms of civic education as well. As you talked about that transparency, you know, when things change or procedures change without key stakeholders knowing key stakeholders and the citizens knowing how the election will be run, that creates a lot of issues. And that leads me to my next question about key stakeholders. Who are the key stakeholders beyond citizens, who obviously are the critical focus of elections? Who are some of the key stakeholders that election commissions and others have to deal with in implementing an election or managing an election? For me, Peter, the most prominent are the political parties. Because I believe that you cannot run an election without political parties. Unfortunately, in Africa, political parties tend to be vilified by the state, by the governing party. Because when I say political parties, I mean collectively, not just the governing party. I'm talking about the opposition. So some countries tend to view the opposition as enemies of the state. They actually view them as enemies. That's and right. uh, to be clapped down, to be you know, harassed, to be you know, arrested. Right now, if you ask me about that opposition leader in Uganda, I don't know whether he's still in jail, but we left him. When we left uh, Uganda last year, he was in jail, you know? And uh, you start wondering uh, now, how can you have an election you know, in terms of liberal democracy, which allows not only the governing party, but also a legitimate opposition, which is constitutional. But they say, yeah, 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 we're running elections and we are a democracy. But when you look at the, you know, the way they do it, they actually are clamping down on uh, the main stakeholders, which are the political parties. So for me, political parties are quite key. Look at what is happening in Eritrea that I was telling you. There are no elections because the constitution is suspended. Political parties are banned. So if you form a political party, you can be sent to the guillotine. You can be killed. In Swaziland, for instance, you have a monarchy. Okay, they call it the constitutional monarchy. Political parties are banned, but they do run elections. Now, what kind of elections are those? For me, they are, these are sham elections because you run elections without you know, political parties. And apart from these you know, key stakeholders as political parties, then you have civil society organizations, a whole variety of them. You've got uh, youth organizations, you have women's organizations, you have cultural bodies, you have got uh, you know, faith-based or religious bodies, right. you have uh, academia, people like us, universities. You need to have them as part of your stakeholders. And as an EMB, 
you have to make sure that uh, you have got actually a, li- a very long list that not only starts with political parties, civil society organizations, you know, other uh, bodies such as donor agencies, uh, observer organizations. It's a whole lo- uh, long list that I can rattle off. But they are very, very, very important because if you don't engage them before an election and give them information, then your election is going to you know, suffer you know, the integrity that it's supposed to have. And it couldn't compromise simply because the EMB did not brief the farmers, for instance. It did not brief the women organization did not brief uh, the civil society organization across a whole variety uh, that they are. And so why do you think some election commissions really struggle with engaging stakeholders, specifically the political parties, the opposition parties and civil society? Is it purposeful? Is it unintentional sometimes? Why do they struggle with this? It's because of a range of answers that are closer to what you have just said. Number one, some EMBs or election bodies are biased, as I said, or they are not so impartial. Mm -hmm. So if you have an election body that is like that, that feels beholden to the state, you know, to the governing party. They will not want to talk to the parties and brief them. In fact, they'll try to shun them. They'll try to shut them down. They'll try to, you know, avoid giving them information up until the very last minute. And they will, in fact, uh, you know, try to deny them information and all those things. But uh, some election management bodies, unfortunately, do not have, uh, you know, the way with all. They do not have uh, sufficient staff. They do not have trained, experienced uh, election functionaries that can go across the board and uh, interface with all these stakeholders. Some of them will normally complain about the money. Yes, we want to engage all of them, but we can't, you know, fly them in, bring them to the center, or we can't go to where they are and engage them. Some of them, I unfortunately, you know, do it just deliberately. They just believe that it's just some a nuisance, you know, to be engaging all these people. By the way, there's the anomaly, a minimalist way in which they operate these EMBs and the maximalist way, what I call the maximalist way. Minimalist way is to say, we are election authorities. We are running an election. We are going to run it the way we want it. We, don't, we couldn't care who, who says what, and we don't want to engage all these people. They will listen to us, and we will give them information as and when we want to give them. That's the minimalist route. Uh, unfortunately, that is very uh, controversial and very contentious, and uh, it tends to bring uh, contentions and uh, challenges by the stakeholders. The, uh, the maximalist way is the one that uh, you know, has been applied by countries like South Africa and even you know, some other countries like Botswana. We say, no, 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 we need to engage them. Let's have a plan. Yeah. Uh, every three, six months, we will meet the sector, we'll meet the youth, we'll meet the women and so on, long before the major election is held. So if you do that, your stakeholders are left fairly happy. And in South Africa, they have meetings with these parties, they regularly meet as the EMB with the political parties. So you find that Peter, before an election is held, on the eve of an election, there's no major issue you know, between the parties and the, the IEC here, because the IEC would have engaged two, three, four months long before to tell them, this is the type of election we are running. This is the money that we have. This is the voters' uh, machinery that we're using. Everything is above board. We are going to be using this ballot paper. It's coming from the USA or it comes from Australia or from wherever. It's a South African company which is printing these ballot papers. So to that extent, they, you diffuse the tensions. And if you have that kind of approach, what I call the maximalist approach, it tends to work because then, you know, the stakeholders feel included. It's an inclusive approach, not an exclusive approach, mm-hmm. whereby they will support you rather than condemn you, you know, after the election is held. Now, one of the big debates about election commissions is this distinction between independent commissions and partisan commissions. You know, those that are distinctly independent or attempt to be, and those that include political parties in some form directly, either by proportion of vote 
or having one member or two members from each political parties. And a lot of countries have very different mixes of these. And some countries, such as Kenya, I know that the opposition has been pushing or interested in a more partisan electoral commission. What do you okay. think about this issue in this debate? Is independent better than this partisan approach or are both fine if implemented under the right circumstances? What do you think about this? And what is your opinion in this debate? Look, Peter, as a scholar myself, and as someone who has been in an election management body, South Africa's IEC, I'll be inclined towards the independent approach. I'll tell you why I prefer the independent approach. The independent approach says, you as the EMB have the relative autonomy, can't be full autonomy, the relative autonomy to have a healthy distance from the state as well as the governing party. You have the you know, relative autonomy to decide on the election policies, procedures and so on. You can recommend electoral reform where you think it's due without you know, undue interference by the governing party or innovation where which is undue. You know? And you also, most importantly, have access to your own funding. It might be coming from the very same state or it might be coming from outside sources, but at least you've got control of that budget and then you can decide, okay, we have a five-year budget. This is how we are going to, we are going to employ so many people and this is how we're going to run the show. show. But practically in Africa, it's very difficult to have an independent EMB. The approach that tends to be, you know, adopted is a fairly, you know, mixed approach, whereby you have a partial independence with, a, you know, state relationship, whereby the state, you know, obviously it appoints some of the top executives, maybe the chairperson, the chief electoral officer, and maybe there are some commissioners there, like it happens here in South Africa. They're here, they're appointed for seven years. In other countries, it's five years. In Kenya, I know it's roughly the same time. Also across the continent, it's there roughly the same tenure. So in the case where these people are appointed to serve in this election body, surely, Peter, you cannot expect them to be completely extricated from the goings on in the governing party and also to be beholden to the head of state who sometimes calls the shot because either it's the chief justice or it is the president who appoints them. So that a mixed approach is what we have currently. Uh, unfortunately, you can't have a pretty biased one. There have been complaints by some researchers and some observers, but as you said earlier about impartiality, transparency and integrity, these are some of the things that are very difficult to prove. To say, mm-hmm. if you say Absolutely. they are completely biased and they are partisan, to what extent can we say that? Because mm-hmm. they are quite aware that in this day and age, you have to run elections at least partially, you know, I mean, independent and fairly impartially. You cannot afford the other route of being completely biased and being associated with partisan elections. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the issues that you talked about, turning more to the management side than the stakeholder relations, but obviously those two issues are related. You mentioned earlier in the interview technology and the implementation of technology. And technology now is being seen as something that is important to have implement in elections. We see the successful implementation or attempted implementation of technology such as the biometric registration systems, BVRs in Kenya and other countries. We've even seen electronic voting, majority electronic voting in the country of Namibia, their recent elections. What are the prospects for the implementation of technologies? And do you see any concerns with how technology is currently implemented in elections? Absolutely, Peter. I do have major concerns about how technology is implemented in the continent. I'll tell you why. For a simple reason that in the MDEA program, that we host at UNISA. I teach or facilitate the module called the Research and Knowledge Management. To break it down for you, it touches on issues of ICT in elections. What is the role of ICT? 
And the more I have conducted this you know, module for the past four years now, I am increasingly you know, convinced that the continent is very far from you know, adopting the technology such as the one that you have described in the case of Namibia. We were actually shocked when Namibia went that route in 2014. I was supposed to have gone to Namibia to see how the technology was going to work in place because they are importing it from India. Incidentally and strangely, it went very well, of what I could gather. And so other countries are now inviting the Namibians into other countries in the Sadek region to showcase this uh, you know, technology as to how it, it works. And it looks like Botswana have you know, taken the bite because now they are also trying to follow suit. But if you ask me, the major stumbling block and the major concern in, uh, in terms of this technology is the issue of where is the technology coming from? In other words, is it coming from in-house in your country or is it coming from another country? If it's coming from another country, to what extent? That company itself, it, does it have any vested interest in the outcome of any election? You know, what's the background, you know, ethical background of that company? To what extent can you actually safeguard the integrity of the outcome of the election using these machines? How safe are they? Can they be hacked or not hacked? Uh, in fact, what are the weaknesses, the limitations of these machines? In the case of the Namibian thing, the major problem is that these machines cannot produce a receipt that shows how an election was uh, you know, conducted and the outcome right. simply because uh, should there be a query, should there be a request or a requirement for a revote or a recount, you know? Mm -hmm. you, you can't. You can't simply because the, the machines don't produce that. So that's a limitation. But the key concern is not only this issue around the, these uh, slips, which are obviously very important, produced by the machines, but also the issue of the origin of the technology and all the issues surrounding that, the money. Some countries, Peter, do not have money. In fact, many other countries in Africa do not have the money to go to India, to go to the US, to go to Europe and you know, import these machines. Also, sometimes these technologies, unfortunately, this is Africa. They come with you know, strings attached. Yeah. Uh, you find that it is the governing party which goes to, um, I don't know, uh, Tajikistan. And when they are there, they are negotiating for oil. And then Tajikistan says, by the way, we have, uh, you know, this company which is uh, producing ballot papers and ballot whatever, and we can help you with your elections. So country X comes back to home and say, listen, ta the Tajikis have said that, uh, you know, they are going to give us oil, provided we also, you know, use their machines. So you find the EMB being told to the face that, listen, we've got these machines, they, they are going to work. It has happened in a number of countries whereby they get told that, listen, you've got no, no choice, but you have to use these machines. So that is also a major weakness because it also tends to compromise the integrity you know, of these machines, including uh, is there a need for these machines? Lastly, in my course, I've discovered that the issue of illiteracy. Africa it is a continent that comprises countries which have got high illiteracy rates. Mm -hmm. And so if you have people in the in hinterland, where there's no Wi-Fi, you know, in these areas where the internet is close to zero. There's no internet in that area. And you have traveled in other parts of the country. I don't know your experience in Botswana, but I've just been to Botswana about a week ago. In that area where I was, there's no internet, there's no cell phone, uh, you know, coverage. So how do you expect some of these machines to work? So clearly the illiteracy issue as well as infrastructure, you know, weak infrastructure and weak or no cell phone coverage as well as, you know, internet technology is actually going to compromise this technology. By the way, when you talk about technology, we should not forget that countries like the Gambia, they are still using technology, but this is indigenous technology, these marbles. I am told that they are working because they don't rely on any Wi-Fi or any internet, but that's the story for another discussion because sure, they have yeah. a unique 
uh, electoral system with marbles and uh, whistles and bells. Yeah, that's right. When you drop the marble and you had the yeah. sound that has occurred. Yeah. So yeah. one of the things you mentioned with technology is that a lot of the capacity to deal with technological implementation elections is, is not there. And so one of the interesting things that I have found is that citizens become concerned when you have this implementation of technology being the hope for leading to more transparency. But then when it fails, you even get a worse result when people are mistrusting it more because they say, what what was behind it? It may have been malfeasance or it may have been the fact that capacity for implementing that technology wasn't there in the first place, as you mentioned, like schools without electricity and trying to run laptops that do the BVR, the biometric registration and identification won't work. So that's an interesting point. I found that myself being an election observer in Kenya in 2013 elections as well. Now, another... Actually, talking about that Kenyan election, uh, they were blaming the South African company which manufactured the the election official simply says, no, uh, yes, we are aware that the machines have failed, but guess what? It's not us. It's this South African company's gadgets. You know, they come from Johannesburg, so we are not mm. responsible. Interesting. Yeah. And that goes back to your first point about the relationships between the contractors and, and the issue of procurement and the transparency around that and the implications, which I think which is an interesting point that not many people are really talking about today or yet that concern. Mm-hmm. Now, another yeah. key issue is the issue of security around elections. So obviously, mm-hmm. a baseline level of security is very important to having voters feel comfortable to actually get out there and vote and have a say. But also times the security surfaces, as you mentioned earlier in the interview, can be used for reasons of hurting opposition or somehow involving or meddling in electoral affairs and the expression of a popular will in election. So I'm curious, what does a healthy relationship between you know, the key stakeholders, political parties and others, and the security sector and the state look like in your view? Where does that trust and where does that positive relationship begin? Yeah, in my view, that relationship begins with the EMB, making sure that it safeguards the integrity of the election using the legislation, whereby the security forces, whether these are the soldiers or the police or whatever, those ones who don't have an immediate role in the election must be confined to the barracks. They must be confined to their camps during election and, uh, you know, even after the election. Mm -hmm. Because if they participate in suppressing, you know, opposition, harassing them, detaining them, you know, many of those uh, roadblocks that, uh, you know, you can see that these roadblocks are actually meant to stop citizens from exercising their freedom uh, of movement, freedom of association, freedom of, uh, you know, to vote and so on. Those relationships, I think, in my view, compromise, you know, the role of security in elections. Security in elections, in my view, must comply with the law, the electoral law, and the electoral law must be clearly stipulated that those security officials who don't have a specific role to play before in the period, the immediate pre-election period, election day as well as post-election day, must be confined to their usual stations, barracks, camps, whatever. But those ones who have an immediate role to play should comply with the law by, among others, ensuring that they facilitate citizens' access to the voting stations or the polling stations. They don't hinder them. They don't intimidate them. They don't arrest any political parties, whether it is opposition or governing parties, and they don't also obstruct the work of the election body. If they can do that, in terms of the electoral law, I think we have uh, in a healthy relationship that was going to build. But in some other countries, I have to mention Zimbabwe because I had a practical experience in 2013. First, I come in, guess what? In the state media, 
there are all these, uh, you know, guys carrying machine gun, uh, you know, on the television. And I asked one guy, I said, hang on, what are they talking about? It was in the local language. He says, no, no, these are people who were fought during the Liberation War. I said, oh, okay. So, but, uh, so these people, I go, what are they saying about this? No, no, they're saying that they must just remember the heroes, you know. So in my view, Peter, I was able to see how the state cleverly uses, you know, the state broadcaster. You know, to broadcast these messages during an election. It was during the election day because these people who are, you know, the liberation fighters, they are associated with the ruling party. Apart from that, we also discovered that there were, you know, thousands, literally thousands of um, soldiers as well as, uh, you know, security, you know, armed forces from the army to the uh, air force who were registered as um, quote unquote special votes. And I was asking one of the election, uh, you know, officials. I said, look. How come you have about 70,000 or so of these, uh, you know, uh, security forces as special votes? Are all of them going to be participating on election day as they are? He says, literally, you know, we were inundated by their applications. I said, but are you able to give us a, you know, a breakdown of in the list? He said, no, unfortunately, we can't. Now, that for me is an abuse mm. of the role of security forces. Needless to say, some of these, you know, officials were reportedly and allegedly used to intimidate voters Prior to an election, they had been apparently moving around, marauding in those villages in the hinterland, threatening citizens that, look, you have to vote the way we expect you to vote. If not, there can be civil war. Mm -hmm. There can be civil war and we will have war in your hands. For me, that is an abuse of, uh, you know, the role of, of security forces. I keep also using the example of Eritrea. Why are citizens of Eritrea running, absconding from their countries, ending up in the Mediterranean as victims, you know, as we normally see in our screens on CNN, BBC and all these international news uh, channels? My view is that it is the wrong and unethical, you know, use or abuse of the state, the, the security forces to harass citizens. And if you do that, obviously citizens are going to be terrified of uh, the soldiers, the army, the air force, whoever are the security forces and the intelligence, because they know that these are being used to prop up the regime in power and not to allow them to exercise their democratic constitutional rights. That's right. And a lot of the points you made were very insightful about where that security sector starts. And I, and I like that example about how it's not necessarily overt intimidation that can be used, but it can be other signals okay. that are specific to the country's context and the country's history that can be used as yeah. well. Now let's move back in the last two questions here. So thinking broadly about election quality and that question that I mentioned at the outset of the interview, in your view, is election quality in African countries in the main, so overall increasing, decreasing, or staying the same and if so, where is it increasing the most, that election quality and how you think about it, and where it's either staying the same or, in fact, declining, in your view? Peter, this question of election quality needs to be responded to with a proviso, with a mm -hmm. cautionary note. The cautionary note is that it's difficult to say. You know why? Because I divide the continent into four regions. The Anglophone countries, the Francophone countries from French-speaking domains, the Lusophone or former Portuguese speaking. There's a few from the Spanish, but I would just say, you know, I mentioned the Lusophone and what I call Afro-Arabic. If you look at, you know, these four regions, the way I categorize them, we've got different pictures. In some areas, you find that the election quality, like I'll talk about the, our own region, the SADC region, the Southern African region, the election quality in certain countries, not all of them, in certain countries, it has improved because they are now warming up to the idea of that charter I was talking about, the African Charter on Democracy, Elections and Governance, and they are also warming up to the idea of making sure that election monitoring and observation is definitely part and parcel of their template for the electoral cycle to right. election. 
and, and the role of research and academic and you know and that kind of thing they are not shutting us out so some of those countries i'll say that the, in some of those countries i'll say the quality election quality has increased also because the citizens feedback from the research that you alluded to earlier from afrobarometer as well as from our own research from the human sciences research council here in south africa is increasingly showing that the citizens are you know are happy about the quality of elections including the work of election support networks it has also given us other indicators that yes to some extent the quality is increasing but in some other countries let's say west africa for instance gambia where i was maybe ivory coast i'm not so sure about burkina faso togo some of these countries and even in east africa countries like kenya I wouldn't say they had the election quality is increasing that much. I would say to some extent it's fairly stagnant. Because just when we think that, okay, the country has had a very good election, the next thing there's violence, the next thing people are dying. And you know what? I was just looking at this election in France recently, which just brought Macron to power. And I was thinking, wow, they have had an election. There's no death. There's no violence. There's no car which has been destroyed. There's no building that is on fire. Why can't African countries have you know, this election? And normally when I share my views with other colleagues, I tell them, look, we can't compare ourselves with Europe or with the US or with uh, some of these countries. But I believe that we are still very far away as African countries, whereby we can have an election that, you know, has all these qualities where there's no violence and so on. For as long as you know, African elections are still, you know, punctuated by violence, by no-go areas, by uh, intimidation by the armed forces, by, you know, arrest of, uh, you know, opposition, you know, candidates and leaders. I think that the election quality, we can't really talk about the election quality in many of these countries, 55 as they are. Some of them, in fact, you can't even talk about the elections, the very basics of the elections. You can't even talk about them because these are stage managed elections to take the boxes. Like I mentioned to the one of Ethiopia in 2015, where you have 99.9% uh, you know, of uh, you know, boxes being ticked in favor of uh, you know, that election. And yet the citizens, some of the citizens, including some of the opposition parties like the Oromo you know, uh, party, were complaining bitterly that they have been uh, you know, prevented from campaigning. And yet the EMB has got 99% of all these uh, you know, statistics to say that everything went well. For me, that kind of stage-managed elections simply and blatantly compromises the quality of an election. We've been talking about this, and as we're both researchers, I'm curious, in my last question here, what is the role for African universities in conducting elections and supporting some of these election support projects that are there? We hear a lot of the scholarship coming from Western institutions. You've mentioned the Electoral Integrity Project. We also do work here at Michigan State, but I'm curious, on the African continent itself that is close and proximate to all these election concerns we've been talking about, what kind of research or what kind of centers or initiatives are really being taken um, that are moving that, that research and also the practice forward? Peter, that's a very, very good question because myself here at UNISA, the University of South Africa, we have been asking ourselves this question ever since we started with this MDEA initiative, you know, the management of democratic elections in Africa. And we were saying, Who's out there in terms of our own fraternity, academics, scholars, researchers, who is able to give us information, who is able to connect with us and give us, uh, you know, some kind of collaboration in terms of conducting research and even observing. But guess what? I think I stand under correction, but so far I haven't heard of any other university out there among the 55 or so countries that has, uh, you know, taken the initiative that the UNISA has taken, whereby they go and observe an election like I did. I went into in Zimbabwe in 2013. I was 10 in on behalf of the university, not as, as part of SADC or the African Union or AU or Commonwealth. I was, you know, I went there as part of a university initiative, such as maybe also probably might have done as Michigan State University. So to that extent, I believe that this is one of the uh, limitations or the weak areas or the gaps out there that needs to be filled. 
We have spoken to our colleagues in the continent at the University of Zimbabwe. We've spoken to people from the University of uh, in the region, Lesotho, Swaziland, Botswana, as well as Kenya. Also, uh, when I was in Uganda last year, I started, tried to speak to people at the uh, Makerere State University there. And also in the Gambia, I went to the local university in the Gambia. Uh, my colleagues, I know they've gone to Nigeria. But if you ask me, currently on paper, we do not have any collaborative networks with those universities, and we are not conducting any uh, joint research. We believe that this is a gap that needs to be filled. And I'm hoping that through the MDEA initiative, we will be able to close the gap. But it is something that I think it is also quite exciting, a space for us as universities, as researchers to engage in, as well as the gap to fill. Professor Mapunye, thank you for taking the time to talk to the Leaders of Africa Project and all the best with your research and initiatives in supporting election assistance. We hope that you will speak with us in the future. Thank you very much. I would like to also thank everyone who has supported us during the startup process of broadcasting. As we continually improve the production value and hone our broadcasting skills, that support is much appreciated. Thank you. Professor Kelly Aboha Mupunye is the inaugural Whipple Bergaliabam Chair in Electoral Democracy in Africa at the University of South Africa. We spoke with Professor Mupunye about election management and election quality. Do you have thoughts on whether election quality in African countries is increasing, decreasing, or staying the same? We want to hear from you. Email us your questions and comments at yourvoice at leadersofafrica.org. And that's it for me, Peter Pinar, on this episode of Leaders' Voices from the Leaders of Africa Project. Thank you for listening. Until next time. <laughs>